as we um, think about reconciliation further, again, a lot of the, the images that we have been working with are, are these images, these visions in scriptures of the, the nations, the peoples of, of every tribe, tongue, and nation coming together in one place. And again, there's, there was the, the obvious imagery or illustration this past weekend. If you happened on Friday evening to watch the Olympics opening ceremony, you saw this incredible procession, right, of all of these uh, athletes pouring into the stadium there in Tokyo. And, and albeit a bit strange this year with, uh, without the crowds that would usually be there in the stadium and the, the social distancing that had to take place, it was still incredible to see, you know, nation after nation, these distinctive groups of athletes right, bearing the, the flag of their home country, wearing, you know, often uh, clothing or fashion that represents the culture of the place they belong to. And in many ways, for, for the two weeks of the Summer Olympics, these athletes will be ambassadors for the places they come from. Right? They, will, they will represent those places before the watching world. But starting uh, the last Summer Games, back in 2016, in those, those times of, of global gathering, there was a recognition among the global community that something important was missing from the, those representative nations. There was a recognition that actually an additional flag was, was needed for a unique group of athletes. And these athletes, they don't share the same country of origin. They don't share even the same passport. They don't even speak the same language uh, together. But what all of these athletes shared in common was that they all had the experience of being world-class competitors without a nation to compete for, without a flag to bear into that stadium because they are refugees. And so if you watched on, uh, on Friday evening, one of the first groups into the stadium carried the Olympic flag. And there are, this year, in, in total, about 29 athletes that will compete as members of the refugee delegation. And in doing so, they'll represent the, the 80 million displaced people in our world today who, who don't have a flag of their own, who don't have uh, that, that sense of security of saying, this is where I belong, or this is where, where I come from today. We have a, a sizable number of, of refugees even here in our own community in Chittenden County. Individuals, right, and families whose perseverance, whose resilience, whose strength right, needed to, to be represented and valued in our world. And so without this particular group of athletes, there was a sense that that, that global gathering at the Olympics would be conspicuously incomplete that something was missing and needed to be added for that, that unity, for that sense of fullness and diversity to be present. This morning, as we come to our fourth and final message on this, this work of reconciliation, I want to look with you at a particular prayer of Jesus. And it's Jesus' prayer in John 17. 
And it's, on the one hand, it's, it's a concluding prayer. It comes at the end of Jesus' earthly ministry. But in other ways, it's a prayer of beginning. It's a prayer of commissioning. It's the start of something new. And it marks Jesus sending his disciples out into what will become a, a truly global movement. And Jesus prays as he prepares to, to send out this delegation that will represent his name, will represent the values of his kingdom, people who will be ambassadors for him and for the Father. He prays that three things would come to define their identity together. And I think all three of these things are necessary. Jesus says all three of them have to mark the, the character of who we are, the, the way we live our lives together. And, and without any one of these three things, our, our witness, our mission would be conspicuously incomplete. So Jesus prays that his followers would be holy, that they would be sanctified. He prays that they would be one, they would be unified, and he prays that they would be glorious, that they would be luminous with the witness of who God is and his love for the world. Holy, one, and glorious. These are, are three things Jesus prays for his church. I think they're three markers that he would pray for us, the present day witnesses of his to the world. And I think there are also three things that we can hold up and sort of assess. Are, are we practicing these things? Have these things prepared us to be agents of reconciliation in God's world today? Are they taking a, a deeper root in, in our life and our worship together? So as we hear these words, know that Jesus is interceding for us. Jesus has prayed that these things will come to, to take place and to characterize us. Let's also pray and, and be open that these things would, would be growing desires, that they would be areas that, that, that God wants to break up new ground within us today. Let me turn to John uh, 15, sorry, John 17, verse 15. Let me pray as we, we come to God's word. Lord, I pray that we would be able to hear these words this morning in the same way the disciples gathered there in the upper room would have heard that. Lord, that we would sense their directness. We would sense the, the challenge of these three areas. But also that we would sense the great strength of your spirit to accomplish them within us. Lord, may the words of my mouth as I preach through this passage, may the thoughts and meditations and convictions and applications of our hearts be pleasing in your sight. Jesus, it's in your name that we pray these things. Amen. A little bit of context in John 17, just before and just after. This chapter is Jesus' prayer, but it's sandwiched with the recognition that the, the road the disciples are going to walk is not an easy one. 
there is a recognition in, in 16 that the disciples are about to be tested. They're about to be scattered. And then in John 18, Jesus goes into, uh, you know, in, into the events of the crucifixion. He's arrested. He's betrayed. Right? And, and this whole passion narrative is set in motion. So in, in between the, the challenge and the testing and the difficulty, Jesus takes this time to pray for us, his people. And he prays here that God would faithfully protect us and guard us and hold us together in these three dimensions. Look at verses 15 through 19 to begin. Jesus says, my prayer is not that you take them, meaning this, this group of disciples. My prayer is that you not take them out of the world, but that you protect them from the evil one. They are not of the world, even as I am not of it. Sanctify them by the truth. Your word is truth. And as you sent me into the world, I have sent them into the world. For them I sanctify myself, that they too may be truly sanctified. First thing Jesus prays as he begins to impart or, or, or commission his disciples here is that God would make them holy. Or as the, the NIV puts it here, that God would, would sanctify us. In the same way that the priests were, were sanctified or made holy to be ministers in God's presence, in the same way the temple was sanctified or made holy to be a place where, where we entered and met with the living presence of God. Jesus now prays that those things would characterize his people, right? his followers, his disciples, that we would be similarly set apart, that we would be similarly sanctified or holy. And I've said on more than one occasion from up here that I think that word holy or holiness or, or sanctification often trips us up. So I think we have a hard time understanding what it, what it means or, or how Scripture thinks about holiness. What kind of life does this call us toward? We typically picture holy people as legalistic people, maybe even a little bit judgy kinds of people. Maybe we associate holiness with a special kind of rule-keeping, keeping score, but I think when we get a, a clearer notion of, of holiness as Scripture speaks about it, it says holiness is, is to be like God because he is holy. It's a, it's a participation in the character of God. It's a participation of, of being like God, of loving the things God loves, of being incorruptible as God is, of being pure in the same way God is, in, in being full of life and light and truth in the same way God is. Holiness is, is our ability to, to reflect and, and enter into the character, the nature of God. So if anything, I think we would find that the world out there doesn't, doesn't take issue with the holiness of the church, per se. Typically, the world out there is offended not by our holiness, but rather our lack of it our hypocrisy in place of holiness. 
Notice that, that Jesus here prays that we would be made holy, and he says that there's a particular thing that, that causes this to take place in us. Verse 17, he says, Sanctify or make them holy by your truth. And your word is truth. To be holy, to enter into who God is, the things God loves, we need to know what is true. To be holy, Jesus says, is to love what is true. I think we need to ask ourselves, are we marked as a people by the unique teaching, the unique wisdom, the unique perspective Jesus has on all the things, all the dimensions of our life, all the issues that we confront? Are we marked by the truth of Jesus when, when we face injustice? Are we marked by the truth of Jesus when we encounter the failings and failures of, of ourselves and the church? Are we marked by the truth of Jesus when we confront things like racism or division or, or every other kind of human brokenness? Do we know what God says is true? Are we studying it? Are we allowing that to lead us and challenge us and expose us and grow us? When we invite the light of God's truth to humble us and to reveal our hearts in that way, right, that kind of holiness is, is beautiful. It's causing us to become like God in his holiness, like God in his truth-telling, like God in his desire to be agents of reconciliation. So holiness, then, is to be marked by the truth of Jesus in everything we do. That's what Jesus prays for. He prays that we would be marked by truth, that we would be guarded from untruth, guarded from the corrupting influence of, of other values, of hypocrisy in other ways. But notice that when Jesus prays for our holiness, he, he prays that we be marked by truth, but there's also something Jesus prays against in his prayer for holiness. He prays that we wouldn't conflate holiness with physical separation from the world or from the culture or from the people out there. He doesn't want us to assume that holiness means an evacuation from the world and its brokenness. And in fact, Jesus is pretty explicit about this. Look at verses 15 and 17. First, Jesus prays to the Father. He says, do not take them out of the world. That's not what holiness is about. But rather, verse 17, send them into it. As you make them holy, as you, as you give them my truth, as you sanctify them by my truth, send them into the world in the same way you have sent me. Jesus, as, as he understands holiness, says it's a quality in us that that matures and begins to develop, to develop when we are in close proximity, when we are in relationship with the world that is groaning for redemption. Our world needs to see a people who are holy, who are truthful, who are seeking to grow in truth, and who are willing to be present in the world in the same way Jesus is to us. 
So Jesus prays as, as his ambassadors to the world that we would be holy in the same way he is holy. Added to his prayer that his people would be marked by truth, marked by holiness, Jesus in verse 20 prays that we would also be one. Look at verses 20 and 21. My prayer is not just for them alone, meaning this first group of disciples. My prayer is not just for them alone, but I pray also for those who will believe in me through their message, that all of them may be one, Father, just as you are in me and I am in you. May they also be in us so that the world may believe you have sent me. Jesus says, unity, oneness is a, is a precondition for, for the world to find our witness credible. One of the most incredible things to me about the church today is that we're still here. Consider that, that we are now a few dozen generations removed from the, the sort of direct or, or living or embodied witness of Jesus on the earth. And after all those generations, right, the, the viability of this message, the viability of Jesus in his gospel has been entrusted to us. And sometimes I wonder, what was Jesus thinking? Right, I mean, you guys are great, but... We all have some issues, right, that we bring into this church, this family, this body. And it's difficult. But apparently Jesus saw this coming. He, he anticipated this reality because in verse 20 here he prays not just for the 12 disciples in the upper room that night. He knows that, that the story of his gospel and his witness won't end with them. He prays in turn for those who will believe in me through their message. Jesus knows that the message of that gospel will be bound up. The credibility of that message will be bound up with the lives of the people who proclaim it. And Jesus says the hallmark, the, the thing that will, will testify to the truth, the authenticity of that gospel better than anything else will be the unity, will be the oneness of that body. The unity of those witnesses to one another. Jesus prays, verse 21, that we would be one. In the same way, think about that the nature of this oneness. He says, in the same way that God the Father is one with Jesus, and in the same way that Jesus is one with the Father. He prays that we would be like that divine family, like the triune God. He prays that we would be united, we would be bonded, we would be committed, we would serve one another and love one another in that same way. And we might think, well, Jesus' prayer here is naive. Maybe Jesus just couldn't foresee how hard it was going to be for all of us to work together. Maybe Jesus couldn't foresee all the fights and issues and things that would divide this body of believers over time. Until we remember the group of 12 people Jesus picked out 
on purpose in the first place. And I think if you examine the group of 12 disciples, you'll discover that they were not a particularly homogenous bunch. They weren't pulled together because they shared everything in common. In a recent article for Christianity Today, writer Judy Wu Dominic points out what she calls the enormity of Jesus' disciple selection. Let me read to you a quote from that article. Dominic says, Jesus welcomed militant nationalists from an oppressed class. I think she's thinking of Simon the Zealot there. Jesus welcomed someone who would have been considered a traitor to his race, probably Matthew, the tax collector. Jesus welcomed people born into wealth, likely Barnabas and John were disciples of some means. Jesus also welcomed people living hand to mouth, like the fishermen, the sons of Zebedee. She says, by calling them into the same inner circle, Jesus created a community that would demand something from everyone. Let me read that again. By calling them into the same inner circle, he created a community that would demand something from everyone. Those from privileged classes were challenged to repent of their indifference toward the oppressed. And she says, those who were embittered victims were challenged to forgive and to humanize their oppressors. And basically, she's pointing out that Jesus strategically selects, Jesus strategically picks out 12 people who he knew would have a really hard time working together, living together, loving each other. Right? The, the degree of difficulty on this one is a 10. Right? He doesn't go for the easy idea of community here. But Jesus is committed to walking these things out with them in the three years they share together. And incredibly, it's to this group of 12, this diverse, divided, conflict, probably intensive group of 12, that Jesus hands over the entire legacy of his mission, hands over the entire legacy of his gospel here in John 17. But Jesus believed that these 12 could be one. They could live together as one new family in the same way that he and the Father were one. Suppose that means there's hope for us too. But we have to actually believe that Jesus' prayer for unity, Jesus' prayer for, for oneness is vital, is essential. Do we actually believe this is an essential feature of the gospel or not? As John Perkins makes clear in, in One Blood, he says, quote, For too long, many in the church have argued that unity in the body of Christ across ethnic and class lines is a separate issue from the gospel. There has been the suggestion that we can be reconciled to God without being reconciled to our brothers and sisters in Christ. But Perkins says, Scripture simply doesn't bear that out. The prayer of Jesus for his people does not 
bear that division out. We can't neatly exclude this command. And if we choose to do so, if we choose to take that route of, of division, to, to live with that, that, that convenience, if we excuse our own infighting or our own prejudices or our own biases or our own places of privilege in the house of God, then the result, Jesus says, is that our witness to him and to his gospel becomes awfully muted, becomes awfully dim. In some cases, it actually becomes counterproductive. Right? The world sees the message embodied in the church and says, if the gospel doesn't even have the power for you to love one another in the way you, you claim to, in the way your scriptures claim to, and what good is that gospel? Right? Our, our love for one another, our commitment to one another cannot be optional. It has to be essential. So Jesus prays for our holiness. Jesus prays for our oneness. And as we come to the end of this prayer, Jesus prays that our witness would not be muted, but that our witness would be glorious. The third thing Jesus prays for. Let me read to you verses 22 to 26. Jesus says, I have given them, I've given these disciples the glory that you gave me, that they may be one as we are one, I in them and you in me, so that they might be brought to complete unity. Then the world will know that you sent me and have loved them even as you have loved me. Father, I want those you have given me to be with me where I am and to see my glory, the glory you have given me because you loved me before the creation of the world. Righteous Father, though the world does not know you, I know you, and they know that you have sent me. I have made you known to them and will continue to make you known in order that the love you have for me may be in them and that I myself might be in them. Jesus prays we would be holy. Jesus prays that we would be one as he and the Father are one. Finally, he prays that we might share in the glory the Father and Son share together. Glory is, is a special word to John the evangelist. He, he uses it in, in kind of a unique way in the gospel of John. And I think when, when John speaks about glory, he's not only thinking of like a, a far off, distant, heavenly reality. It's not just the glory that like the, the hymn writers speak of, of, of one day in glory. For John, glory is all about about brilliance. For, God, for John, glory is about luminosity. It's about light. It's about what we see when we see Jesus as he truly is. Glory is what we see when we see Jesus for who he truly is. Remember way back in the first chapter of John's gospel, right? In the prologue where it talks about the logos or the word of God and how the word was in the beginning, and it was with God, and it was God, and all things were created through the word. And that word was the light and life of our world. 
And then partway through that prologue, John says that the word became flesh. It took on material substance. It took on a body. And the word made its dwelling among us. And as a result, John says, we have seen his glory. The glory of the only Son of God. Glory is God's presence made visible. Glory is God's presence made tangible. And the whole gospel of John before this, leading up to the prayer we're in right now, is is case after case, evidence after evidence, scene after scene of God's glory spilling out into the world through Jesus. God's glory shows up at a wedding in Cana. God's glory shows up at a well in Samaria. God's glory shows up for a blind man in Jerusalem. God's glory shows up at a graveside tomb in Bethany. The glory and the life and the light of God spilling out into the world through Jesus the Son. And now Jesus is praying that that same glory might mark us as his people. And in the same way that Jesus, when he prayed about holiness, said said, truth is bound up in our practice of holiness. Well, when it comes to glory, he says love has to be bound up in our gloriousness. Look at how verses 24 and following connect the experience of glory with experiencing the Father's love. Jesus says, I want those you have given me to see my glory. And he says, it's the glory you have given me because you loved me before the creation of the world. That's what makes Jesus so glorious, is is he has been loved from eternity past by the Father perfectly, fully. Jesus is glorious because he knows how deeply the Father loves him. And in verse 26, then he prays that the love you have for me, Father, might be in them. In these witnesses I am sending out into the world. That the love the Father has for Jesus the Son might be in us. And in return we might be glorious. We might be radiant. We might be able to show up with with the overflowing, spilling out luminosity of God's glory in our world. Jesus prays for these three things. He prays for our holiness He prays for our unity. He prays for our gloriousness because they're who he is. He wants us to be as he is in the world. So as we we conclude here, in just a minute, we're going to take the offering and we're going to have a time to reflect on these things. Let me just offer you three particular applications, one for each of these areas. How could we be growing in our practice of holiness, particularly as it pertains to reconciliation, as it pertains to to issues like racism and the things that are dividing us as a people. I think Jesus' prayer is that we we, we grow in holiness as we know what is true, as we reflect and live what is true, what Jesus has taught us. So would you be willing to, to take time to examine these issues, to examine racism and bias and and the need for deep reconciliation in our world. I invite you to study, to make space in your life 
to study them in the scriptures, to study John Perkins' book, to learn more, to understand what is true, what God desires for us in this way. Secondly, are we willing to grow in oneness? Let me try to make this application small but but concrete. I want you to think about one person. It doesn't have to be on the the basis of of some greater cultural bias that you're, you're separated, but one person that you have experienced distance from, one person you are not one with today for any number of reasons, but you you sense and you know the Holy Spirit would lead you to move toward. Let me challenge you to take one small step toward, toward reconciliation. Maybe that's a note. Maybe that's an act of blessing, an act of service, an act of encouragement to that one particular person. Sometimes the, the, the idea of reconciliation seems so big that it's, hard to know where to start. Think small steps of practicing humility, practicing forgiveness, practicing lowering ourselves and serving and moving toward those we don't understand prepares us for those bigger steps. So how could you move toward someone you're inclined to be separate from today? Thirdly, how are we growing in glory? We're going to be glorious witnesses, as Jesus prays, then we have to spend time knowing how deeply we are loved. We need to to be drawn up into the love the Father and Son have for one another. I think that only happens when we're still. It only happens in the quiet place. It only happens through prayer and through worship and, and through soaking in the great love God has for us as his children. So let me, let me encourage you to apply that to your life today. Are you growing in your appreciation of of the glorious love God the Father has for you so that you might offer that in turn to the world around us? Let me invite Carol to come up. She's going to play for us. We consider those applications. Also invite the ushers to come around and receive our gifts and tithes this morning.